Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So, civil rights organizations are suing the federal government over its refusal to provide proper information on why the Emergencies Act was invoked in February. And Mr. Trudeau's government instead is attempting to focus on the inquiry, or focus the inquiry, on uh, the actions of protesters. Let's talk to uh, our previous guest on this issue, Kara Zwiebel, who is the lawyer and director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. The CCLA is suing the government on this. Uh, Ms. Zwiebel, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, just great. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. We're both we're both happy, and it's close to income tax day for many, and <laughs> for others, it's just gone. <laughs> Maybe it's just self-defense. I don't know. So, now, as I understand it, you're the lawyer. Invoking of the Emergencies Act mandates the government to engage in a full inquiry into its reasons for taking this dramatic step in suspending civil liberties, correct? So, yes, the, I mean, the Act requires that uh, an inquiry be held. It also requires that there be a, you know, a parliamentary committee, which, which is underway already. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and earlier this week, the government announced the, uh, the inquiry. And there's no question that enacting the emergency, after invoking the Emergencies Act, in fact, does uh, compromise civil liberties of each and every Canadian, yes? I would say it does. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize it as suspending civil liberties, but I would say that it um, it, it certainly puts civil liberties, um, you know, right at the center of things. And really what the government has to do under the Emergencies Act, and they're still supposed to comply with the charter. So what that really means is that any, you know, restrictions on rights and, and limits on our civil liberties have to be have to be justified by the government. OK, so now this is what the inquiry is supposed to be about. But uh, Mr. Trudeau's not approaching it this way. His focus is on the protesters and the truck convoys, particularly the convoy in Ottawa. So what is wrong or even uh, dangerous, potentially, to Canadian democracy by the prime minister acting in this manner? This is the first time that any prime minister, in fact, invoked the Emergencies Act since its creation in 1988. What's, what's challenging about the decision and the direction Mr. Trudeau is taking? Well, I think, you know, the, the way that the government has, has sort of framed the terms of reference of the inquiry is certainly um, skewed. And I think it, you know, what, what the Act says is that it, the inquiry needs to look into the circumstances that led to the invocation of the Act and the powers that were exercised under it. So I, I do think that looking at, you know, the issues around the convoy and how that developed, those are important pieces. And it, it's certainly legitimate for the um, inquiry to, to look at that. But um uh, the major reason why we have this requirement to have an inquiry in the act is to hold the government accountable for their actions. And so, um, you know, the, the terms of reference sort of, they, they do talk about, you know, law enforcement. There isn't really as much emphasis on looking at the actions taken by government and, um, you know, and assessing those. And that, I think, is what the inquiry needs to do. And I think, frankly, it is what the inquiry will do. I think the terms of reference are broad enough to allow it to do that. Um, and, and the reason we, we need that is because we need to understand, you know, what was so extraordinary about these circumstances that led to this um, this act being invoked. Because what the act does is it takes all of the government's powers and it allows them to be exercised by, um, you know, by, by basically by cabinet, by the executive branch, without going through the normal process of debate um, before parliament that is open to, 
you know, open to scrutiny and uh, much clearer and more transparent to, to the public than, um, you know, what happens around the cabinet table. Now, what concerns me, among other things, is that government action is usually or quite often based on precedent. And this is the precedent-setting invocation of the Emergencies Act. And if this, the, if this precedent didn't really require the Emergencies Act, which many people feel it did not, then that lowers the bar potentially for a future government to take this extraordinary step, the step of, sort of the, the measure of last resort for government to try to protect the Canadian democracy, does it not? Yeah, I certainly think that's the concern. I mean, the, the worry that we had when this, uh, you know, when the act was first invoked is that this is, you know, sort of opening opening the gates to the use of this extraordinary piece of legislation. And um, and so, you know, before we um, before we consider whether that precedent is something that we should be followed in the future, we need all of these different accountability mechanisms that exist under the act to uh, to do their work. So I mean, that's the review committee. That's the inquiry. It's also something that's, you know, not not directly contemplated in the act, but, but not precluded by it. It's the legal actions that uh, organizations like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association have, have brought, basically asking for judicial review of the government's decision to, uh, to invoke the act and asking for a judge to assess whether the legal threshold under the statute was, was met. Mm-hmm. So, um, Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, has said Justice Rollo, uh, who's conducting the inquiry will have access to classified information and that the judge will decide what he requires from the federal government. And the minister says it was the police, as you heard, as we all know, they said it several times, that it was the police who urged the government to invoke the Emergencies Act. So so I hear that, and then I hear them also say that they're not going to share the information with Canadians openly, um, why they why they invoke the Emergencies Act because of cabinet confidentiality. So when you say, I mean, I may be just grasping for a straw here, but when you say that it was the police advice that caused you to uh, engage the Emergencies Act, uh, are you not opening the door and closing uh, to, to to information and closing the door to your cabinet confidentiality argument? Um, you know, I think I think it's hard to it's hard to say. I think there's an argument there that um, you know that that. By uh, by making those statements, the government's sort of opening up that process. I also think there's good good reasons to um, to suggest that the government should waive cabinet cabinet confidentiality oh, I in agree this with case. You. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, and I also think, I mean, the the act requires that the the government lay out its justification um, for both houses of parliament. You know, right right uh, in the seven days after the act, uh, the the declaration was proclaimed. The both houses of parliament are supposed to have an opportunity to to take a look at uh, at those reasons and decide whether to basically affirm the proclamation or not. Um, and in the reasons that the government put forward, you know, I don't I don't see any reference to sort of any confidential information, any information that's subject to, to national security privilege or anything like that. So so I think there is going to be you know there's going to be arguments to be made around whether um, it's appropriate for the government to withhold anything um, and what needs to be seen either by um, at least you know the, the judge or in the case of the inquiry the the, um, the commissioner um, and otherwise um, also you know what what do Canadians get a right to see? Yeah, and and let's not forget Minister Bill Blair said just days before the Emergencies Act was invoked, the police already had all the powers they needed 
to address the issue. So, I mean, they're, they're coming at this from different compass points. Uh, the same people in the same cabinet or people within the same cabinet are approaching the issue from different compass points. What, what, what's the... What is the? How is the CCLA engaging this in court? What are you? What are you bringing forward into the court case? I mean, really, you know, what we're bringing forward is is just, it just. I mean, by virtue of bringing the court case, what we're doing is saying, okay, now it's the government's onus to to you know to justify it, and it's not um, to justify it after the fact. It's to justify it by showing us the evidence that existed at the time that the act was invoked that that justified it. Um, you know, there's there's other organizations that are also pursuing judicial review, and so um, they've some of those other organizations have raised the issue of, of uh, cabinet confidence, and, and there's going to be motions to to address that. Um, but this process of having you know a, a judge in court make an assessment about whether the legal threshold under the act was met is, I think, very important because um, you know as far as the sort of precedent setting nature that you mentioned earlier. Um, the idea is to get some guidance from an independent judiciary about whether the circumstances here warranted it, um, and and also not just whether it was okay to invoke the act, but whether the powers that were exercised under it were both necessary and proportionate. You know, whether they were in fact compliant with the charter, uh, because I think there's a good argument that they went quite a bit further than than was necessary or justified. So uh, there was something that Mr. Trudeau said in Parliament this past week, and uh, the ethics shadow minister for the Conservative Party, James Bazan, wrote a letter to the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, and it reads in part, Dear Commissioner, I'm writing about fresh developments related to the Right Honorable Justin Trudeau's 2016 vacation on a private island in the Bahamas owned by someone who had dealings with the government of Canada at the time. Yesterday on the floor of the House of Commons, Mr. Trudeau admitted he did not have the consent in writing of the head of his branch of government to accept this very valuable gift. This is a very important revelation, given that you'll recall from paragraph 68 of the analysis performed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's Sensitive and International Investigations Unit that the only essential element of the offense of fraud on the government, contrary to Section 121 uh, of the Criminal Code, which would appear in doubt after a prima facie review of the Trudeau report, would be the following. Did Mr. Trudeau have consent in writing of the head of branch of government for whom he worked to accept benefits from the Aga Khan? Well, let's talk to Mr. Bazan about that. James, thank you for coming uh, on the program. Thanks for joining us again. Mr. Trudeau is the head of government. He is, and he had the power to uh, give himself a get-out-of-jail-free card, and he did not. Uh, so as he confirmed on the floor on Tuesday and again on Wednesday uh, during question period, uh, he did not give himself authorization to accept uh, this uh, very valuable gift. And that has completely changed the dynamics. And um, just to back up a bit, you know, we... Uh, we did an uh, access to information request of the RCMP uh, over 13 months ago. And we just received that 500-plus uh, page um, documents back. And in the RCMP's own criminal brief, uh, they were it, it proved that they actually uh, looked at charging Justin Trudeau with fraud on the government. And when you look at the decision tree, the matrix that's um, part of the analysis of whether or not a fraud was committed, 
it was yeses all the way down that he did until you get to the point of the decision um, process uh, following you know criminal code section 121 1c is whether or not he had permission to accept the gift and the rcmp said it is unknown and because it is unknown then it becomes uh, uh, a stay of proceedings or that they decided not to charge him of being guilty of fraud on the government and that is why when he said that he didn't give himself permission <clears throat> it changes the matrix to actually go to the final verdict of guilty and so yeah, that's I mean, why it, it, it demands it demands an rcmp uh, further investigation if the head of government gives himself essentially the permission to benefit uh, from the taxpayers money on a trip to the Bahamas to visit his father's friend, not his friend, uh, as I understand it. At least Ms. Dawson uh, questioned that friendship, family friendship. And then they said the initial cost of the trip was $127,000. Then it turned out to be $215,000 billed to the taxpayer. There's a lot of, a lot of loose ends here. There is, and that's why we believe this should be investigated further. And that's why, you know, on, on Wednesday morning, I, I sent a letter off to RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and asked her to reopen this investigation. And, you know, there <clears throat> was further revelations uh, this week uh, in the Global Mail uh, story uh, that was published yesterday morning. Uh, in their interview with Mary Dawson, who was the ethics commissioner and found Justin Trudeau guilty on four counts uh, under the Conflict of Interest Act, and uh, violation of the ethics code that we as members of parliament and as public office holders uh, have, um, is that she was unaware of section 121C of the criminal code. And that is why she didn't refer anything to the RCMP for investigation. And that also pokes another hole in the RCMP's uh, complaint that it's not in the public interest to pursue charges against Justin Trudeau because they felt that if you know, Mary Dawson had been of the opinion there was criminal um, violations here. They would have, she would have referred this to the RCMP and, and did not. So they made a pile of assumptions, and we want them now to actually interview Mr. Trudeau, as well as staff in the Prime Minister's office, uh, to get down to the bottom of this and whether or not charges should be uh, laid. And this case ultimately turned over to the Public Prosecutor Service of Canada. Yeah, I'm not questioning the ethics of the former ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson, when I say this. When people will hear the uh, three minutes of the interview, which aired in August of 2020. Um, but Ms. Dawson was very gentle in describing Trudeau's violations of the Conflict of Interest Act. And I don't know if that affected, well, you just said that um, the RCMP were impacted by the decision taken by the then ethics commissioner. So ha have you heard any anything back from the RCMP commissioner? Do you have any sense of what you're going to receive in reply to your letter? Uh, they have not written back to me yet. They haven't reached out to me. Um, you know, the same thing occurred with my predecessors, both Michael Barrett and Peter Kent, when they were also uh, in the position of shadow minister of, of ethics. Uh, when they put in complaints to both the RCMP and the RCMP Complaints Commissioner, it took, uh, you know, weeks and months to, to hear anything back. Uh, but ultimately, based upon new evidence, uh, there's grounds to reopen this case and to reinvestigate. And we expect the RCMP to do just that. When they want to talk about, you know, what's in public interest, uh, we're talking about the honesty and integrity of the Prime Minister of Canada. 
And we're also talking about public trust in all federal institutions, the Parliament of Canada being one, the RCMP being the other in this process. And uh, they need to restore that trust and know that Justin Trudeau is not above the law, that he will be held as Prime Minister to a higher standard, and that the Prime Minister of this country cannot act with impunity. I want to just ask uh, Tom in the studio. Tom, get that Mary Dawson clip ready for now, the three-minute piece. I want you to get that ready now. Don't. We're not going to play where we said we would get it ready now. Uh, James, do you have a do you have a sense where the Canadians in 2022 believe this case from 2016 is still relevant? I know that the NDP do not, uh, and maybe that's because they have uh, the coalition with the Liberals right now to hold them in power, um, but uh, they're going to be guilty by association if they don't actually respond to this in a positive way and, and ensure that there's accountability uh, in Parliament. And if they want to wait until the RCMP actually reopens the investigation, you know, that's too late because uh, once it starts the investigation, then we can't politically interfere. So at this point in time, you know, uh, until the RCMP makes the decision, I think that there is grounds for committee hearings at either the Justice Committee or at the Ethics Committee uh, in, in the House to undertake studies to look at exactly what happened here okay. and how you know this decision uh, was reached without properly uh, having interviews of the Ethics Commissioner or the Prime Minister. Professor Christian Luprecht is back with us, Queen's University and Royal Military College, senior fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome. Christian, thank you very much uh, for the time. What's your assessment of these two months since the Russian troops crossed into Ukraine? Well, I think one lesson that we've learned here is not to believe ever the narratives that are spun by authoritarian regimes, right? So fourth largest military in the world, this massive defense spending, um, that uh, the Russians were simply not up to the task and everything we knew about the Russian military in terms of its dysfunctions um, and its command and control problems, its logistics issues, its maintenance issues, its morale issues, um, uh, all uh, came to a head. But I mean, we still see this playing out. The Russians are now trying to do a bit better on uh, concentrating their forces, shortening their supply lines, um, but uh, they still have significant issues coordinating um, airstrikes and land forces, and um, uh, they they continue to have challenges in coordinating at the tactical level within and between units, um, and they still have significant command and control sort of issues. So I think so. That's one of the lessons that we've learned. Another is that Putin is determined that this is uh, him and his generation and his. Uh, Kremlin cronies um, are profoundly aggrieved about the, the effectively uh, the Soviet Union and so now Russia by extension having lost the Cold War um, and uh, that they have uh, imperial ambitions for Russia that they will not drop. And uh, so Biden's point about the European periphery cannot uh, live in security and safety as long as Putin is in power, I think is also one of the lessons that we have to take away. But I think we also need to keep in mind that if we play ahead 10, 20 years, the new generation of kleptocrats in Russia is still as kleptocratic as the current elite, but they're not aggrieved about losing the Cold War and they 
want to maintain their wealth and they see the destruction of wealth as a result of this war. So I think we don't want to alienate Russia too much. And I think we've seen this sort of by the West uh, in, in its response. And we've also seen that uh, we didn't get ourselves enough credit. That Operation Unifier, to which Canada, of course, has contributed very actively since 2015, um, with the United States and the United Kingdom training Ukrainian soldiers. We saw the way the Ukrainian military underperformed in 2014 when challenged by Russia. Um, and I think everybody, uh, except for the people who I think maybe did the training, um, were surprised by how resiliently Ukraine has been able to respond. And so it shows that um, precisely to your introduction, that intervention and the sort of supports that we've provided over the years make a massive difference. And this is why it's so tragic that Canada has been so modest in its support because, of course, Canada paid it forward. Canada had such foresight when it came to Op Unifier and its participation when no continental European country was prepared to pitch in. Canada had such foresight with the enhanced forward presence in Latvia, where it was, again, the Americans in Poland, it was the Brits in Estonia, it was Canada and Latvia, and only the Germans as the only continental European country as a framework nation that stepped up in Lithuania. Now, of course, all the other member or most of the other NATO member countries provide support for the enhanced forward presence. But I would say it's it's really tragic for me to watch here because we made all this investment. We provided this massive down payment that is getting us through to this point. But now Canada is saying, well, you know, we've sort of paid our dues and sort of we'll just kind of step back. And look, I think the difference here is the Brits that continue to put in everything they have and then some just now announcing 8,000 troops for uh, for exercise hedgehog that's uh, that's about to happen clearly in the United Kingdom and and increasing most European continental European countries including Germany that has been so reticent this is being treated like an existential conflict not just for democracy but for the international rules-based order and I think Canada and the federal government are still treating this as sort of a bit discretionary you know we can yeah. we can pitch in we'll do a little bit here and there but it's really not the main show this is the main show these are the Napoleonic wars of the 21st century and the outcome of Ukraine has profound ramifications for the future of this century. Okay, so now let's look at this in the two minutes before we take the break. Given all of that you've said, and I agree with everything you've said, the existential threat that exists, Putin continues, using the word threat, he continues to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. Do you fear that he will or might resort to nukes, even battlefield nukes, to further frighten the world? If he finds himself like a rat in a corner, would he reach for nukes, any kind of nukes? So let's go by what we know. So Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, just in the last two days said the West is sort of overplaying all this nuclear stuff. Russia has never actually said anything of the sort. Uh, this nuclear saber rattling by Russia is simply a provocation by the West that Russia doesn't intend to use nuclear weapons. So that could sound like de-escalation from the foreign minister in terms of like, you know, like that's that's nobody needs to be on edge here. We also know that since the beginning of the conflict, 
um, right in the very first days of March, uh, this was not widely reported, Russia and the United States established a hotline, uh, just like the way they have in Syria and just like the way they've had throughout the Cold War, uh, to communicate and deconflict on Ukraine. So we know that there are back military channels uh, in place to try to avoid any misinterpretation or missignaling. So that cooperation is hopeful. At the same time, Sweden and Finland looking to join NATO. I mean, yes, they're concerned about their territorial integrity, but what they're really concerned about is tackling nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, because there's no defense against those weapons other than um, strategic deterrence, so, so nuclear deterrence by the United States. And so that's really what them becoming the 31st and 32nd likely new members of, uh, of NATO is about. So certainly the, those two countries um, and uh, continental Europe is taking very seriously um, a potential by Russia to resort less so to strategic nuclear weapons, but possibly to uh, the use of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, possibly on the Ukrainian battlefield, if things in the coming days continue not to go the way that uh, Putin would like with his dysfunctional military. Christian, when it comes to intelligence, Mr. Putin is not happy with his own military intelligence. He's placed several of his officers in prison. I'm just wondering, is that Russian military uh, rotting from within, maybe rotting is a strong word, is it starting to uh, become more dysfunctional from the center on out as they're now facing the Ukrainian military that is punching before its weight? And does the Ukrainian military have the ability, given the influx of weapons and ammunition from the West, does the Ukrainian military have the capability to push the Russians back to their own border? Yeah, I think this comes down to a question of professionalism. And I think what the Russians really have exhibited here is that they are not very professional. And part of this comes down to the large conscript army. But I think what's not been widely reported is that a lot of these conscripts come uh, from the eastern parts of Russia. So these are areas that are very far flung. They're, they're very violent places. And so this is also why you see some of this extreme depravity uh, in terms of the behavior by troops. But that also then shows that these are just not very disciplined troops. I mean, what you want your troops to focus on isn't on abusing civilians. You want to make sure that they ultimately prosecute the war effort because everything else here is ultimately a, a, a distraction from the military aims that you're looking to achieve. And it seems so not only does for all the reasons that I outlined at the beginning, does the Russian military have great difficulty itself as an organization achieving these aims, it reflects, I think, as I've pointed out in your program before, military sociology. Militaries reflect the qualities of their society. And and we just have a, you know, what what is Russia? I mean, it's a developing country with nuclear weapons. And it could be a prosperous, thriving civilization if it wasn't ruled by kleptocrats that continue to extort and abuse the institutions of the state for their own purpose. So I think that is really the big advantage that the Ukrainian military has, that if it continues to focus on professionalism and prosecuting the war effort and not getting distracted by hatred against uh, against Russia, Russian soldiers, and so forth, if it keeps its eyes on the ball as it has uh, for uh, what over sixty days now, I think the uh, there is a good chance that uh, the the Ukrainians will be able to continue to resist, and I think the meat there's sort of 
three areas here. So the immediate is resisting until May 9th so that Putin doesn't have anything where he can declare victory, uh, any gains that he has made for his whatever great fatherland sort of parade, whatever that he wants to announce. The next is then holding out over the coming months because Putin, I think, will have to reconstitute substantially if he can't achieve aims um, by May 9th because he'll have lost so many men uh, and so much materiel that there's an opportunity here, I think, for Ukraine to be able to hold the line and continue to make life difficult for Russia. And I think in the long term, Ukraine may actually be able to push back militarily, but that continues, requires continued resolve by NATO and Western countries. And remember, everything that Putin does isn't just designed for a tactical purpose on the battlefield. It is meant to divide NATO and the European Union. Uh, And certainly this is why coming back to your initial question about attacking nuclear weapons, uh, that would certainly be a massive challenge for NATO uh, should he use such a weapon. And so maintaining unity is gonna be the single biggest challenge for Canada and allies, which is another reason why Canada needs to continue to show resolve in its contributions to the Ukrainian effort. Yeah, increase that resolve. Um, Hasn't Putin, though, really performed a task that many didn't think was possible, and that is unify NATO nations that have been arguably drifting apart from one another? Well, the first secretary general of uh, NATO, Lord Ismay, the famous statement about what is the purpose of NATO to keep the Russians out, to keep the Americans in and to keep the Germans down. And uh, I think we're seeing uh, NATO finding uh, its DNA in its original roots here. Um, We had the challenge of keeping the Americans in uh, through the Trump administration, where everybody was reminded that they had to do more, which is, I think, why Europe here stepped up. I'm not sure we would have the same response from continental Europe um, if it hadn't been for the the Trump administration. Um, I think we see the resolve in uh, keeping uh, keeping the Russians out. Uh, And I think we also see the pressure uh, uh, that has built on Germany now being the largest, the the key pivotal country in Europe, um, that uh, while the initial uh, objective may have been to keep the Germans within their borders, uh, that now NATO needs to make sure that Germany actually steps up as a leader in continental defense, continental security and international security policy. And we can, I think, finally see Germany um, uh, maturing into that key leadership role in Europe. Tom Korski is one of our, he's one of our favorites, executive editor of the Black Locks Reporter uh, at Mining Ottawa on Twitter. We always have a good conversation, and I've been trying to uh, get rid of my car by using Tom to, <laughs> as inter- intermediary. I've just I've decided to keep the thing now. <laughs> so I'm you're off the hook. Best, uh, Roy. Yeah, Plus, I think so. you can drive it in the, uh, what, tomorrow's uh, International Workers' Day, so you can drive it in the parade. Yeah, that one wouldn't fit. <laughs> no. No, it wouldn't fit in the parade. <laughs> no, definitely not. It's not a comrade car. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a Lada. That's why I mentioned. <laughs> no, no, no. It's right around five hundred horsepower. So it's not. It's not a comrade car. I don't believe in them. Wheels fall off at thirty-two miles an hour. <laughs> How are you, Tom? I uh, I'm well. It's finally we, a little bit of spring. I don't want to boast because I know not everyone can share that. But finally, a little bit of spring. I may turn off the furnace this week, which is always a great week. 
It's celebratory, I think is the word. Celebratory. How are things in Ottawa today? A, a bit of uh, a, a bit of overtime for the Ottawa Police Department, but other than that, uh, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves and exercising their constitutional rights. Right. Okay. We keep an eye on that, of course. Um, many and varying reports and descriptions and unfounded accusations circling around the issue of why the Trudeau government invoked the Emergencies Act in February, including Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino telling the Parliamentary Committee, well, why don't you tell us what he told them? Well, he said this was uh, in part because of uh, a dramatic and violent lawlessness, specifically attempts by uh, Freedom Convoy protesters to burn down an Ottawa apartment building five blocks from the blockade back in February on Lisger Street in Ottawa, burn it to the ground. Uh, and us uh, murdering people in their beds as they slept. The problem is that had nothing to do with the convoy. The building didn't burn. There were two people charged with arson. They were both longtime Ottawa residents, Roy. They had nothing to do with the convoy. Isn't it interesting? Here we are all these months later, the Minister of Public Safety still making up slander about the Freedom Convoy to justify the invocation of the Emergencies Act. How peculiar is that? They still haven't come up with the evidence that they used to to prompt the invocation of that extraordinary emergency police powers act no it's it's cabinet confidence of course but i was speaking with the um the lawyer with the canadian civil liberties association at the beginning of the program and my point tom was once the prime minister says they made the decision to invoke the emergencies act based on uh, police advice they've already started themselves to tear down the uh, cabinet confidentiality defense because you're telling us why you did what you did so you you've, you've knocked down the first domino so keep on going well it's it's interesting there are even people who were no friends of the truck drivers say this was obviously political but there's a game they like to play in ottawa and i have to say roy they're pretty good at it and it's called the blame game and right now, there's a sort of a, a it, they're going to see which donkey is going to have the tail pinned to him. Will it be the Minister of Public Safety, Mendicino? Will it be the Attorney General, Lametti? Will it be the Finance Minister, Freeland, who said, and I quote her accurately, that the truck drivers threatened democratic institutions. The rest of us only saw irregular parking and breach of the noise bylaw. She saw a threat to the 44th Parliament and all the de- democratic traditions we hold dear. Somebody is going to have to walk the plank on that, Roy. It's going to be fascinating. Yes, it will be. And Canadians have a right to know why that particular um, nuclear option, which is what it really is legislatively, was exercised when the legislation has been in place since 1988, was never invoked by any other prime minister, and other prime ministers have faced crisis situations arguably significantly more uh, more concerning than what happened in February in Ottawa. What, Tom, let me just flip things around here. I usually ask you about um, stories that you have on Black Locks. I, I particularly wanted to talk to you about the only two aircraft, only two aircraft in Kabul. But before we do that, what is the story? What, what generated the most interest from your followers on Twitter? What, what, what got them going this week? It's funny, you know, I don't have a Twitter account, as you know, uh, Roy, and I, I don't actually have a mobile phone. Um, and so uh, <laughs> I, I cannot really discuss that intelligently. 
I'd like to think all our stories are of equal interest Very to all good. our subscribers. How am I doing? How That's am really I? good. Did I do That's a good really job? Good. Oh, you're fantastic. <laughs> I wish I was that quick when I walk into a corner. And I'm, I'm sorry, I painted you into that corner. I know you don't have a, a mobile phone. You're supposed to have one. It's what keeps the world going. Okay, so let's talk about this. There were only two aircraft in Kabul. One of them wasn't working too well. This was during the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. When we were supposed to be bringing uh, those who had helped Canada, like the military interpreters, we were supposed to be bringing them to the country because, as Trudeau said, you were there for us, we're going to be there for you. But they were there with two aircraft. One wasn't doing too well, and the other one came back with whom? It's interesting. This was on August 15th, 2021, really a day of infamy at the Department of Foreign Affairs. They don't like to talk about it, and who can blame them? The Ministry of Immigration's testifying in committee, and he was asked about what happened in Kabul when that city went to hell, the Taliban took over. And there were thousands, as you mentioned, by official estimate, 1,250 Canadian citizens. These are Canadians, just like you and I and everyone else. And thousands and thousands of Taliban allies, or rather Afghan allies, who had helped us against the Taliban for years. Well, the ambassador, his name is Reed Sears, S-I-R-R-S, remember that name. He couldn't run to the airport fast enough with his staff, and according to eyewitness accounts, fled on the one really usable Canadian military aircraft, half empty, so he could get back to Ottawa, leaving behind a closed embassy, and thousands of people desperate for help, military commanders, former military who were trying to get their associates, friends, and neighbors out, described it as a national embarrassment. I think that's putting it mildly. There are commons committees trying to get to the bottom of this, really an episode that is beyond shame. It's really shocking, actually, Roy. It really is. And uh, the United States had 110 planes, you write on Black Locks Reporter, 110 planes on, on site. And I've spoken with uh, Major General Jeffrey Slosser, who was the commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Division in Afghanistan. And he was, he's aghast at how the Americans chaotically got out. Canada certainly showed the Americans how to do that. Um, and one other story here, Tom, that caught my interest. Well, they all catch my interest, but unprepared for climate cuts. Federal climate programs, Black Locks reporter at Mining Ottawa, federal climate programs threaten at least 170,000 jobs with little transitional planning by cabinet. Say it ain't so. That's the say, that is the comment from the Environment Commissioner, Jerry DeMarco. So he's a federal appointee. This is not some person rocking the boat off in the lunatic fringe. This is the commissioner of the environment, a federal commissioner, and he said, look at you people since 2015, since you signed on to your climate change program in Paris, France, have promised just transition. They call it just transition. What does that mean? They count 170,000 coal, oil, and gas workers directly employed in about 50 communities that are entirely reliant on the energy industry for uh, some sort of advancement, training, assistance, uh, motivational speeches, something, Roy, to get them to transition to this world where we rely on tidal power and the sun to heat our homes and drive our cars. And the cabinet has done nothing. Commissioner DeMarco said, you're asking for it. You are looking at the prospect of the collapse of the Atlantic cod fishery in the 90s, 
Canada's biggest layoff cost 190,000 jobs. They never got over it in Newfoundland and Labrador and other provinces. It was absolutely infamous. And here they are. The feds are doing it again. No comment from Kavanaugh. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.